Hello, and welcome to Good Jewish Lover, the Torah of Relationships from the Pardes Institute in Jerusalem. I'm Rabbi Brent Chaim Spodek, and I am thrilled this week to be joined by Jonathan Vatner, a old friend and a novelist, to think together about how we relate to each other, how we connect with each other, how we can do the hard work of loving imperfect people better and how the richness of the Jewish tradition can help us inform our practices, understand what we're doing, and reflect on where we succeed and where we fall short, which we all do all the time. So, Jonathan, welcome. I'm so excited to to be with you here on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Brent. So great to be here. So, Jonathan is the author of The Bridesmaids Union um, and Carnegie Hill, two recent novels with incredible dynamics of human affairs in them. And he lives in Yonkers with his husband, Morty. And we're going to be diving in today to a short but I think rich story from Masechet Ketubot. And just as a reminder, so Masachet Ketubot is part of the Gemara or the Talmud. And what the Talmud is, is essentially a extended auto-anthropology of the Jewish people. Over hundreds of years, rabbis, thinkers reflected on how it is that the Jewish people lived. And their stories unfolded the way a conversation unfolds. So in the Talmud, there are discussions of law, discussions of practices, um, things we do on our holidays, how we adjudicate conflicts, what we do in prayer, recipes, jokes, and stories, including the story we're going to take a look at here. This story shows up actually in an extended conversation about intimate relationships in marriage, and it begins with this character named Rav Rechume. The name itself is an evocative name. It means something to the effect of beloved rabbi or lover rabbi, right? Rav Rechume, merciful, right? So Rav Rechume used to study with the great sage Rava in Machosa, which was far away from his home. So he would travel there to Mechosa, which was in Babylon, and he'd have the custom of coming home every year on Yom Kippur. Now, it's worth noting that in a traditional context, Yom Kippur is one of the days of the year when it's prohibited to have sex. So Rav Rechume was studying in Mechosa, coming home to his wife just once a year, and specifically Dafka at a moment when he couldn't be physically intimate with her. So one year, he was out in Mechoza. He was sitting on the roof of his yeshiva studying, and he was so engrossed in his study of devotional practices. Back at home, hundreds of miles away, was his wife, who was eagerly anticipating his arrival. And the text doesn't say, but I sort of imagine her cleaning the house, getting herself ready with some of the nervous anticipation of somebody throwing a party or hosting a dinner, eager for those first guests to arrive. And the text describes her looking out and imagining, Hashta ate, hashta ate, now he's coming, now he's coming. Is that his wagon? Is he almost here? But he never comes. He never comes. And at a certain point, she realizes, the wife who's never named, Mrs. Rechume, let's call her, realizes that her rabbi, her husband, isn't coming. Yom Kippur is coming. No wagons are going to come in after nightfall. She, she realizes that her husband isn't coming home, and a tear falls from her eye. At the moment, 
that the tear falls from her eye at the moment that I imagine her heart is broken, realizing that even this once a year visit isn't going to happen. The roof that Rav Rechume is studying on out in Machosa, hundreds of miles away, collapses and he dies. And scene. That's the entire story of Rav Rechume and his tragic life, his tragic love with his wife. And Jonathan, I'm wondering, what jumps out at you at the story? What seems notable to you? I mean, the first thing that jumps out is like, man, don't miss the appointment to see the wife. That's a pretty harsh punishment for, you know, losing yourself in study. But I guess, I mean, to me, the story sort of means you can't just prioritize your work. It's kind of remarkable that she put up with that. Yeah. You know, the once a year thing. I think that that sort of long distance relationship, especially without Zoom or phone calls, <laughs> I don't think that would be bearable to me. Yeah, I want to I want to come back to that question of distance, but I want to pick up on what you noted. Don't make your relationship the last priority. Don't over prioritize work. And I think there is a certain degree to which we can draw an analogy between Rav Rechume being engrossed in his work, so to speak, as a student and a teacher of Torah, and the work that folks engage with today, whether that's, you know, uh, traditional learning or modern learning or law or medicine or science or any of the things that people might do. But it's such a common thing to do. And let me ask, why might someone do that? It's something that so many of us do. Why do you think that is? Why do we over-prioritize work and under-prioritize our relationships? At least in the U.S., work is so valorized, certainly has been in my family. You know, my family, working is like the one thing that sort of you can do without any kind of guilt, working all the time. And just this concept of sort of getting things done and leaving your mark, I think maybe career is a little bit over-prioritized in this country. And I think we don't talk about what relationships require to keep them strong. And it's definitely more than once a year. I mean, at least in my experience, if Morty and I have long nights, a couple nights in a row, then already I'm feeling distant and it does take some repair. I would say like daily communication, daily intimacy is important. I was thinking about Carnegie Hill, my first novel, and in it, it's about four couples at its heart. And one of the couples, George and Bertie, they're suffering because George becomes depressed after he was forcibly retired and sort of publicly humiliated. But the main thing is, you know, he's not working and he doesn't have work. And because of that, he kind of completely breaks down. Like he doesn't have an identity outside of work. And part of his relationship was about having this job. I mean, honestly, like his relationship with his wife was fueled by his productivity and his success. So when he loses that and is sort of in this kind of nebulous retirement, he doesn't want to live anymore and his wife can't figure out how to fix it. Yeah. Something that really struck me in Carnegie Hill with those four couples is the ways in which they didn't really know each other. They did and they didn't. And so I'm thinking of a couple of things here, one in this story from the Talmud, one from <laughs> Carnegie Hill, and one actually in my own life, the ways in which it's so hard to actually know the people we're relating to. You know, there's a, a scene in Carnegie Hill with a different couple, a younger couple, uh, Pepper and Rick, where 
Rick does this whole elaborate thing, sets up this whole crazy scene, which he honestly and sincerely thinks is a gift to his wife, right? That this is going to be exactly what she wants, this whole elaborate scene. And as you write it and as the story unfolds, it's clear it's not what she wants. And it's very clear to her that this isn't what she wants. But somehow what Rick thought his wife wanted and what his wife actually wanted were in two different spheres. These weren't overlapping things. And I'm thinking in my own life, somewhat embarrassingly, when at some point I was out at some conference, you know, I'd been away for a couple of days and I came back. And I was talking to my son, who at the time was five years old, and explaining that I had been, you know, I'd been away and now I was back from this conference. And I, you know, you've been to conferences, you have those badges where uh, the name Mm -hmm. tag where you get all the different little stickers, depending on what you're doing. And I said to my five-year-old, look, I was a keynote speaker. And at the moment (laughs) I said it, I was like, what is wrong with me? He has no idea what a keynote speaker is, nor does he remotely care. I am projecting my own insecurities onto him. I'm not actually relating to my five-year-old and what he wants, which is his dad to come home and get on the floor and play Legos with him. He doesn't, could not care less or comprehend what a keynote speaker is. And so I say that because I have some compassion for Rick in that scenario, right, where he wasn't setting out to be a jerk. He thought he was doing something loving. He was trying to convey something to his wife. And I'm struck in this story that on the one hand, you know, our initial reaction, certainly my initial reaction was like, Rav Rahume, what's wrong with you? How could you possibly be away for a whole year, only come back once a year, Dafka on Yom Kippur, and think that's a way to have a relationship? But I'm actually wondering, and I'm curious what you make of this, is there room to read him sympathetically and be like, wow, Rav Rahume, you're so insecure that you are worthy of love in your humanity. And you don't really trust that your wife loves you for the messed up human being that you are. And you're going out so you can come back and be like, here's my name tag. Look, I'm the scholar. I'm the teacher. I gave a keynote speech. And your wife's like, honey, I could not care less. I want to go take a walk with you down by the water. I want to have dinner with you. Great, you're giving a speech, Mazel tov. who cares? But that insecurity, or I don't know, where do you think it comes from, this desire to put our professional successes into our relationship? Is it insecurity? Is it something else? I think a lot of men are trained consciously and unconsciously to like be impressive. And I think a lot of people think, I mean, Rick in my story especially, A lot of people think, you know, that's what kind of wins you love is succeeding and impressing others. And yeah, in this Talmud story, maybe like all he knows is how to be impressive, how to succeed. And he doesn't, maybe he never was trained or never learned how to be in relationship, how to be intimate and what his wife wants. A lot of couples go through their whole lives without really ever understanding each other. And and that was one of the things I wanted to tackle in Carnegie Hill, not just not understanding the other, but also not understanding yourself. I thought that a kind of madness comes out of these misunderstandings. And so in my novel, it can be read as sort of humorous. A lot of the characters go a little crazy, but it's from what I've observed in relationships. You know, it's so hard to kind of just sit with yourself and sit with your partner and just listen and just observe and not kind of put your preconceived notions into play. 
I'm struck from what you're saying about the gender dynamic of this. And I'm thinking of two different books I've read recently that actually make a similar argument. One is The Will to Change by the legendary academic and theorist Bell Hooks writing about masculinity and patriarchy. And then a very different book together by the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, in which he argues that outside of COVID, the foundational public health crisis in America is loneliness. And where he intersects with Bell Hooks is identifying actually male alienation from our own feelings is at the root of a lot of issues for Bell Hooks looking at a more intimate level in relationships and families and Murthy looking, I think, at a more societal level, but identifying the same root cause. Alienation, particularly male alienation from our own interior lives, our own emotional lives. And recognizing you're a novelist, you're not a mental health, public health person. (laughs) What do we do about that? How do we get better at that? How do we, and here I might say, how do we specifically men, though it's not just men for whom this is an issue, how do we get better at being present with our own feelings, our own vulnerability in relationship, particularly our primary relationships? That is a great question. I have no idea. I think men have to, I mean, everyone really could learn just how to be more present with their partner and how to listen. In relationship, we're always telling the other person what we need and what we want, but sometimes it's hard to hear that. And, you know, it would be great if we could just kind of allow masculinity to be just a part of people's lives as opposed to sort of taking over every moment. I think that would go a long way. So I want to invite you into a little moment of Midrash. One of the things I most love about the rabbinic tradition is its wholehearted embrace of what we might think of as fan fiction, right? Much of the Talmud is taking the characters from the Torah, from the Bible, and just imagining other scenarios, other scenes. Well, what happened? What Maybe it happened this way. Maybe it happened that way. And they, the rabbis of the Talmud have given themselves great license to reimagine their stories. So I want to do to this story what the Talmud does to the Bible and invite you to, to reimagine it. So can I, can I give you a prompt and, and, and see where you go with it? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So Mrs. Rahume at their home has been taking some, she's been reading Brene Brown. She's getting in touch with her feelings. She's articulating her needs. And she writes her husband a letter. You know, this is a long time ago. So it's an actual physical thing that has to get sent out to Mahosa. And the letter says, my beloved husband, I miss you so much. I'm so glad you're pursuing your studies and your teaching and your Torah in Machoza. I need more from our relationship than this. For the last few years, you've only come home at Yom Kippur. You used to come home more frequently. That you don't come home any more frequently than Yom Kippur makes me feel sad and unwanted and lonely. I'd like to ask you to come home and visit more frequently. So now the scene is out in Machoza. The male Dunking uh, arrives with the with the post, right? And somebody's handing out the letters, and Rav Rechume gets a letter from his wife, right? And we can see, you know, there's a voiceover in the in the movie reading out the voice of Mrs. Rechume making this request. I want to ask you to come home more frequently than once a year. Now, what happens? How might you imagine Rav Rechume responding? How might you hope that Rav Rechume would respond? Well, as a writer. It never pays to have the sort of the solution happen too fast. And it also <laughs> doesn't seem true to life. 
So I don't think he would come home right away, Uh at least. I think at first he would be angry and kind of blame her for being needy and not understanding the importance of his work. And then I think that maybe would cause some kind of shift that he's not even aware of. And somehow he would, gosh, he would encounter maybe one of his students, maybe help one of his students with their own relationship and realize that he needs to practice what he preaches and come home. But I still don't think he'd be so great with that kind of intimacy. I mean, it's like, you know, after a long distance relationship or not, just maybe a couple moving in together. I mean, it's so different when you're just with the person, like constantly just figuring out how to navigate each other's needs and the things that irritate you. And I think he would be particularly bad at it. And I hope the couple stays together, but, you know, it's hard to know. And you think he'd be particularly bad at it because he's inclined to go off for a long period of time in the first place? Yeah. I mean, yeah, first of all, what motivated him to be so distant in the first place? But second of all, he just has no training in intimacy. He has no experience being with her except for that sort of quickie. You know, a one-night stand is different from a lifetime relationship. And some people aren't equipped for it. And some people just take a long time to learn. Yeah. These are skills. So much of what goes into being in relationship and being in relationship in a healthy way are learnable skills. But we don't usually think of them as skills, right? At a certain sense, the Beatles lied to us. You know, it's actually not true that all you need is love. I mean, love is great. Like, you know, (laughs) three cheers for love. But actually, those feelings of love aren't enough to sustain a relationship over a long haul. I mean, they're really helpful. I'm not in any way arguing against them. But it's interesting to think of these as skills, right? That he didn't have the skill to recognize his own needs, his own fears, his his wife's reality. And maybe she didn't either. You know, I sort of said jokingly, she's been reading Brene Brown. But it's it's not actually so obvious how we develop those skills, how we learn the skills and capacity to be in relationship. Are there moments when you feel like you've sort of clued in to what maybe Mr. and Mrs. Rahumi here are missing? Like, oh, there's actually a skill, there's a practice in the same way, like, you know, I need to hold my feet right when I'm running. I need to hold my words right in relationship in this way. Has that ever jumped out for you? Gosh, I suppose I've learned how to be in relationship through my relationship. And I think it definitely is a skill. I think a big part of it was doing my own therapy and understanding myself and kind of the ways in which I act foolishly. And then, you know, also the ways that I can be a better husband. Yeah, I mean, I think in an argument, I usually know pretty close to the beginning like who is right. Not that there's always someone right in an argument, but I usually know who is right. And it's not always me. (laughs) And it takes a lot of bravery to be able to say right when it happens, as opposed to like three days later, I'm at fault. I was wrong. It's very scary to do that. And when I did it the first few times, it really felt like I was risking my life. That's how scary it was. But then I realized how 
powerful it was and how much it brought us together just for one of us to admit I, I was wrong. I think that's that's huge. And then I guess the other thing which I still work on is being able to speak up when I'm upset. It's so easy for me not to say anything and the resentment just builds. And so I have to find a way to speak up that doesn't sound like nagging or criticizing. That's just about like, I need this and you're not giving it to me. And I found that to be incredibly powerful in bringing us together. Yeah, that sense of the fear of acknowledging, I'd say both when I'm wrong, but even when I'm weak or flawed or not, when I'm painfully aware of the gap in between who I actually am and who I'd like to be seen as. And I'm I'm thinking actually of a moment. So um, of the various things that rabbis do, one of the things that's hardest for me is laning, is chanting Torah. I can read it, no problem. Getting the notes, getting the music to match the words has always been a challenge for me. And I'm remembering this moment, and I think about it often, uh, when I was in seminary and, you know, I was a... I did well in school. I won lots of awards. I had a, a very shiny public persona. and But somehow I just sort of skated by ever reading Torah publicly. And it got to the point where I was like, okay, I've got to do this. And, you know, I thought like, all right, every Jewish 13-year-old American can pull this off. I'm sure I can handle it. And I signed up to chant all of the Aliyot, the whole, the whole reading. And it was the week before when it like really hit me and it, it hit me. I had to be almost forcibly confronted with the knowledge that there was no way that I was going to be able to do this in the next week. There was no way I was going to master all of that uh, nusach, all of that traditional melody. And I lost it. I remember so clearly it was the Sunday prior to the following week, really sobbing when I was forced to confront the gap in between how I liked other people to see me and who I actually was. One of the gifts that my partner gave me then that I'm grateful to her now, 20 odd years later, is seeing me in my weakness, seeing me in my not as shininess, and reassuring me that her love for me had nothing to do with my public, my professional presentation. And over the years, I've gotten better at laning and can do that reasonably well now. But the real essence of that moment was a real gift that I feel like I've spent the next 20 years trying to be worthy of receiving and giving back, is seeing me at fault, seeing my weakness, seeing my imperfection, and offering me love anyway. I think I, until that point, without ever naming it, thought that in order to be worthy of love, I needed to be successful. I needed to be a winner of whatever that was. And as I say it, I think, what sort of idiot was I? But I think I actually was a pretty common type of idiot in that regard, right? So when you say like, you know, the feeling of danger to acknowledge I was wrong, which is not the same thing as weakness, like they're, they're, they're related, but different. That strikes me really, really deeply and feels so foundational in relationships and so hard. Yeah, I mean, it seems like this rabbi, you know, also probably feels like if he's not successful, if he's not great at what he does, he's not worthy of love. And people have to unlearn that because it's in our culture everywhere. I mean, we get it honestly, but it's simply not true. Hmm. Yeah. And it's a hard thing to unlearn. 
We have jobs. We apply for jobs. We get accepted to jobs. We get rejected from jobs. We get fired from jobs. So much of our experience, you know, we apply to school, we get in, we don't, is predicated on presenting a version of ourselves and then having that version of ourselves be accepted or rejected. Certainly our public life, our communal life is overwhelmingly governed by that dynamic. It's actually hard to recognize intimate relationships. And I don't just mean our our primary, our romantic relationships, our family relationships, all of our intimate relationships as not being conditional in that way, of being unconditional. They're actually the exception in so much of our culture, not the rule. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me, I just finished a draft of my next book. And what I did and not realize it was sort of show the importance of family over career. Because, I mean, the whole book, or at least this whole plot thread is about, you know, getting this great job. And then slowly this character realizes that it's not everything. And he has to realize what he really needs, not just kind of what he wants in theory. It definitely happened to me in my career, you know, getting the glitzy job. It was so exciting to have the job because of what it said about me. But It took me a long time to realize it was not the right job. It was not a good job for me. And that was so hard to admit because it kind of meant dismantling everything I believed about what made a life worth living. Yeah. And it's rare that we come to those realizations without a lot of pain on the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So in that painful process, you know, one of the things I'm struck in your book, uh, you know, or in Carnegie Hill is the ways in which, you know, you've got these four relationships, two sort of in the autumn of their lives, you know, two older couples and two younger couples. Of the younger couples, one of the relationships doesn't endure and one of the relationships seems to be enduring by the end of the novel. But one of the things I'm struck by with the older relationships is for all of the imperfections that you you mentioned, right? You know, George in one of the couples losing his job and the pain and the humiliation there and how that plays out with the other couple, uh, the other older couple, some of their anxieties and neuroses playing out in what they share with each other and what they don't share with each other. I'm also struck with just a huge amount of compassion by the end of it, in which I wound up feeling like, wow, these are four beautifully messed up individuals. They're not wicked people. They're not enemies. They're not, they're, I, for me at least, I didn't, I didn't find myself hating any of them. I find myself quite sympathetic to all four of them in their very human failings. But what I'm struck by is, that the, is the love they have for each other in their failings, right? And seeing each other in their failings. Neither of, none of them are carrying on like, oh, my husband, my wife is really perfect and honest in every way. They're able to say, yeah, my husband, my wife, you know, has lied to me about their smoking, is neurotic about going to a restaurant, is this, is that, is the other thing. And I love them. And I guess I'm wondering, you're of an age where you're younger than the two older couples, but older than the two younger couples. And How do you imagine over the course of a lifetime, people get to that place, right, that Rav Rechume and Mrs. Rechume never get to, where they can really see their partners as flawed and love them anyway? How do we get there? I think it's just time. You know, I wrote the book after observing a number of couples, only one couple, and I won't say which, was actually based on an actual couple. The others were amalgamations of different 
you know, different patterns I had observed. And I just think there's kind of, I don't know, life hurts. You know, life brings you a lot of disappointments along with the triumphs. And once you kind of give up on your childish hopes and just kind of come to a place of acceptance, then the other person in the relationship, you know, you might hate them sometimes, but it's easier to accept the other person when you sort of accept yourself as someone who kind of, you know, is flawed and and maybe didn't, wasn't everything that you wanted to be. Yeah, I really appreciate your coming back to accepting yourself because I feel like one of the dangers in thinking about the imperfections of relationship is recognizing that there is such a thing as abuse, right? There are behaviors or patterns of behavior in which somebody can reasonably say and even appropriately say, this is unacceptable. I can't tolerate this. I need to extract myself from this relationship, which is often an incredibly painful and in many cases dangerous process. But understanding and being thoughtful about what is, let's say, normal human failings that we have to accept if we're going to be in relationship with other human beings, and what is unacceptable human failings that are unsafe or that are dangerous that we have to draw a bright red line on, I feel like a lot of it comes back to what you said of how do we think of ourselves and what sorts of behaviors towards ourselves can we tolerate from a place of accepting and even loving ourselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, I certainly think, yeah, if if my partner is violent, yeah, that's the end of the relationship. But I think in our culture, people give up too soon. I'm not saying, you know, yay, marriage, but I do think people give up on their relationships too soon and they villainize the other when it's it's a human failing that could be worked through. And so part of what I was doing with the book was trying to understand everybody, you know, no villains, everybody, including the people who seem like villains at first, really comes from a place that we can understand and their, their past helps us feel for them and just understand why they're, they're who they are. And I think People in relationship should do that. And I I think it would help relationships last more. Yeah, I was struck. I found that I kept wanting to talk to Rick in similar ways to ways I want to keep talking to Rafa Hume and say, listen, buddy, you figured a lot of stuff out. Rick, you figured out all sorts of financial stuff. Way to go, Mazel Tov. That's great. Rafa Hume, you figured out all sorts of halakha stuff. That's fabulous. That's wonderful. That's great. Relationships are a little different. They are more complicated and fluid. There might be some other ways for you to relate to your partner and actually relate to yourself that actually might make you happier than any of the things you're doing. But coming at both of them from a place of, even though they seem like I'm the rabbi, I'm the financial wizard, feeling like you're a kid trying to learn how to ride a bike and it's okay that you're going to fall down sometimes riding the bike. Like that's, that's, that's how you learn it. It's okay. Let's work on some of these skills. But sadly for Rick and for Rav Rahume, they never really got a chance to um, work on those skills before it was too late. Yeah. Although, you know, I believe that these characters grow after the book is over. I have hope for everybody. I cannot imagine a more optimistic lens to see human affairs, which is probably (laughs) vital unless you're going to start writing dystopian novels. (laughs) So I do want to be mindful of time. So with an eye towards wrapping up, 
I want to ask you something that we do at my Shabbat table every week, which is share what we call our pegs, moments when we've been proud, moments when we've been embarrassed, and moments when we've been grateful. So I'm wondering if there are any moments from the recent past, Jonathan, when you have felt proud, when you have felt embarrassed, when you felt grateful. Well, I just got back from a two-week residency, a writing residency in Wisconsin. And so my moments come from that, since that's what's on my mind. My proud moment was finishing a draft of this novel that is so very different from my last two. You know, my last novels, they have a lot of humanity, but they're, they're sort of light satire, at least on the surface. And this novel I wrote is like very earnest. It's, it's a drama. It's queer. It's kind of epic. And I just feel like I, at some point, I promised myself I would never write a novel like this. And I'm very proud that I did it. Um, and I'm excited. I hope, I hope um, you get to read it someday. I'm excited um, for what I accomplished. Awesome. Well, whenever it is ready to be shared or published or circulated, I look forward to reading it. Yeah, fingers crossed. My moment of embarrassment, oh, there were so many to choose from. But um, <laughs> so I was traveling with two people from my writing group, both women, and we flew into JFK. We all had to use the bathroom. And I said, let's use the one here in the terminal because it's nicer than the one by the baggage claim. And I went and used it, but one person didn't want to use the one in the terminal. And I was so confused. And we finally get out to the baggage claim and she uses that one. And, and she used it because it didn't have a line. And the one in the, she said in the women's bathroom, the one in the terminal always has a line. And the one in the baggage claim doesn't have a line. Now, as you probably know, men's bathrooms basically never have a line. And it's just something I never had to deal with. And it kind of took a moment, you know, for me to realize like, oh, I, I'm not right about everything, you know, like I know me, but I don't necessarily know the other person. And just to kind of admit, oh, I was wrong here. Like it made a lot more sense to use the bathroom outside the terminal, you know, small stakes, but definitely a moment where I had to admit that I was wrong. And then um, grateful, you know, just getting home after two weeks you know, I have a lot of complaints. I can complain about anything about our apartment or whatever, but just getting home and being with my husband and our cats in our apartment, which is just like so comfortable. I was just feeling so grateful that I get to live here, that I get to live anywhere. I, I think it's not something we can take for granted. And it just made me so happy. Well, Awesome. Thank you for sharing those. I want to just pick up on, because I think what you said, that story about the bathroom is so important. Recognizing not only you're not right all the time, I'm not right all the time, but what data we experience of the world is just a small slice of the data, and we experience it through our phenomenon. You, me, as men, have different experiences of lines in public bathrooms. Okay. But it's so easy to think that what I experience is obvious neutral reality, as opposed to the very subjective experiences that I have, whether out of my specificity of being a male, being white, whatever it might be, or just the specificity of being Brent. And so I see and experience things differently than Jonathan or anybody else does. Recognizing that the reality we see is just that, the reality we see, it is not reality, is so huge and so hard. 
So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing all of your insights about this story. Well, thank you. I mean, I think the work of recognizing other people's realities is the work of the novelist. And, um, you know, as you can see, I'm always learning. But I love those little data points because then, you know, it becomes a cool detail in my next book. A hundred percent. Yeah, I think it is the work of the novelist. And I'd say it's the work of anybody who wants to be in a robust relationship of any sort, recognizing the reality or trying to recognize the reality of the other person or other people in that relationship. True, true. So, Jonathan, a total pleasure to learn with you. Thank you for being on the show. Jonathan Vatner, look forward to the new novel whenever it comes out. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thanks for joining us. You can learn more about Good Jewish Lover, the Torah of Relationships, and learn about other in-depth learning opportunities at pardes.org.il. And you can find me, Rabbi Brent Chaim Spodek, on Instagram and Facebook, or get in touch at brent at pardes.org. Please share your thoughts about the show, ideas for future guests, or text you'd like us to explore. Special thanks to David Gutbazal and Jordan Steifman of Pardes, and Johnny Taylor of Beacon AV Lab for audio engineering. Thanks for joining us, and I look forward to learning with you next time about how we can all work to become good Jewish lovers. Thank you.